Coming up on Philosophy Talk. I have this condition. Which comes first, memory or the cell? It's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. I have no short-term memory. I know who I am. I know all about myself. I just, since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. The philosopher John Locke taught that memories establish the identity of a person. How do we distinguish real memories from false memories? Memories are reliable. Ah, please. No, 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 really. Memory's not perfect. It's not even that good. Can I only remember events that I myself experienced? Look, memory can change the shape of a room. It can change the color of a car. And memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation. They're not a record. Is the self just a construct we create to tie all our memories together? Our guest is Stan Klein from UC Santa Barbara memory and the self. Just because there are things I don't remember doesn't make my actions meaningless. The world doesn't just disappear when you close your eyes, does it? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor, coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Carrying on conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford University. That's where Ken is a professor of philosophy while I'm a professor at UC Riverside. Today, we're asking about memory and the self. Ken, there's a long tradition in philosophy that says that memory and the self are intimately connected. John Locke, for example, claim that what makes me today the very same person I was yesterday is basically the fact that I can remember doing the things I did and experiencing the things I experienced yesterday. So for Locke, memory is what actually determines who I am. But John, doesn't that have the implication that if I can't remember doing something, then I I didn't do it? Frankly, I I can't remember half the things I did during certain periods of my youth that were spent, well, in, let's say, something of a haze, I admit. But surely it was me and nobody else who did all those stupid things. Well, you've, you've put your finger on a big problem for Locke's theory if we take it completely literally. But I still think he got something really important right. And now that would be what? Well, his concept of a person. A person, he says, is a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection, that's introspection, and can consider itself as itself the same thinking thing in different times and places. That sounds nice as far as it goes, but doesn't that leave out something? Well, what? The self. Locke tells us what the self does. But he doesn't tell us what the self is. What exactly is that mysterious thing that's doing these two things? Considering and being considered when we, to use his own words that you like so much, consider ourselves as ourselves. What is the self, John? Well, I see the problem, but I think it lies in yourself and not with Locke. You're thinking of the self as some mysterious inner agent. But in that sense, I don't think there is a self. Oh, come on. Haven't you read your Descartes, John? Come on. Doubt the world, if you like. Doubt the body, if you must, but never doubt the self. The self is indubitable, sir. Well, what I don't doubt is that you and Descartes are confusing having a self-conception with having a thing called the self. We all have self-conceptions, but there's no such thing as an inner self. Oh, come on. How could there be self-conceptions if there was nothing to have a conception of, if there was no self? How could that be? Well... Because a self isn't something a person has. A self is something a person is. Myself is just me considered from my point of view. Yourself is just you. You don't think you're inside yourself, do you? Well, I... Suppose I ask you who Ken Taylor is. 
What does he want? You can answer those questions, can't you? Of course I can. So tell me, to come up with those answers, you have to roll your eyes inward and inspect some inner self? Do you have to read a book or do elaborate research? you have to rely on the testimony of others? Don't be silly, John. Don't be silly. That's silly stuff. That's because you have the capacity to do just what Locke was talking about. The capacity to consider yourself as yourself, or as I like to put it, to form I thoughts. I thoughts? I guess you mean something like the capacity to think, I am tall, I am hungry, I am handsome. Exactly. Having that capacity is all it takes to make you a self. It's the basis of your self-conception. And that doesn't require the existence of any mysterious inner agent. John, but, but, but look, if there is no actual inner self, how do you explain how I know myself better than anything else? How it's so indubitable, as Descartes uh, said. Well, what guarantees that my self-conceptions are true for all you've said? They could just be made up. They could be false. Well, our self-conceptions are often quite erroneous, and they actually are remarkably fragile things. What, what do you mean by that fragility thing? Well, well think of the late stage of Al. Alzheimer's patients who can't remember much before the present moment. Or think of a schizophrenic who did something and, and remembers that thing, but he remembers it as being done by someone else. Yeah, that's weird stuff you're talking about. Now, I don't think your buddy Locke, who you admire so much, thought much about the ways in which memory issues like that can alter or distort our self-conceptions. Well, probably not, and not too many philosophers have. But to help us think about this underexplored connection between memory and the self, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, in search of an answer to the question, who exactly do you become when memory goes awry? She files this report. A few years ago, Banker White, a filmmaker in the San Francisco Bay Area, noticed something was off with his mother, Pam. The frequency with which she'd lose her keys and and get lost um, when she was driving from one place to the other. Coupled with the inability to figure out how to solve the situation on her own, my mom was a very young, vibrant, independent, late 50-year-old woman at the time. The family took Pam to doctors, but there was no clear diagnosis. They watched for years, helplessly, as her memory degraded. Then came the personality changes, and the violent outbursts. By the time she got an Alzheimer's diagnosis, it was kind of a relief. Hello, I am Pam White. I am the mother of three children. I will tell you a little bit about me. Banker White's film, The Genius of Marion, documents his mother's struggle with a disease as it steals her memory. Initially, I was quite distressed and upset about it, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything. So I don't feel sad and I don't feel regret. I feel blessed. There's a scene in the film where Pam visits her doctor. How is her memory? Perfect. The perfect. <laughs> the doctor asks her a series of questions to test her memory. And can you tell me what year it is? Um, this is the one that makes me mad because it's something I should know immediately. That's, that's tough, yeah. I know. <laughs> Can you come up with it or it's escaping you at this point? Tell me again. What year is it? 19... something. Okay. 
The doctor then asks Pam's husband, her primary caretaker, if he needs help around the house. Pam isn't too happy about the idea of a stranger coming into her home. You can start to see the toll her illness has taken on those around her. There are just some things I'm not that good at. <laughs> you know? I don't know how to put your makeup on. Mm. You're really good at it. Uh, yeah, that's what you say. <laughs> I do dress you, but I'm not that good at it. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, the showers and the baths and mm -hmm. all that stuff is... I think the problem is that I'm, I am, um, like my, um, how do you say it, pride. What made the diagnosis particularly wrenching was that Pam had watched her own mother, Marion Steele, die of Alzheimer's just six years before. I think that was the most difficult period of my mom's life. Again, Banker White. I don't think she had quite processed it. In the few years since the documentary was filmed, Pam's disease has progressed. She's less mobile now and has severe visual spatial impairment. She needs 24-hour care. But her spirit is actually much improved um, in the sense that all of the kind of fear and the really intense emotions around shame and the amount of energy that she put into that to try and hide her deficits from other people has totally fallen away. Um, it's more painful for us to see my mom change at this point because she doesn't experience that anymore. Banker says he and his mother have new ways of communicating. She really likes to hold hands now. She's less verbal than she used to be and she likes to squeeze my hand and I feel like we kind of play this game where she squeezes my hand and I squeeze it back and even that tiny interaction can hold humor. When a person loses her memory and can no longer recall her own life experiences, who does she become? I don't think my mom is a new person and I don't think that she's diminishing from who she was to being less of that person. I, I really believe that there's something that's essentially my mother that's still there for Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. To hear the rest of this program, head to philosophytalk.org. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.